Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm RA's senior producer, Chloe Lula. Thanks for being here with me. Today's episode features Thomas Sumo and Lakuti, two of Berlin's best known and loved house DJs. Partners in life and in music, they've played as solo artists and together since the early 90s and hold residencies at Berghain and Panorama Bar. Unsurprisingly, they have an unparalleled synthesis behind the decks and in conversation. And on this unique episode of The Exchange, they interview each other. They talk about the roots of their respective musical practices. For Thomas Sumo, the bars and lesbian weekenders in Kreuzberg, and for Lukuti, disused warehouses in Johannesburg, South Africa. Growing up, I wanted to listen to the top 40. I was usually fighting with them to listen to what I wanted to hear. Yeah, it was a great upbringing. So how, how did you get into electronic music then? We had a really great club scene in the 90s in South Africa. Really fantastic scene. They also talk about deeper, more intrinsic aspects of their crafts, their respective journeys through music, their relationship, and their identities as marginalized artists navigating Germany's house and techno scene. It's an incredibly heartwarming and illuminating lesson from two of house music's most preeminent artists. This interview was recorded live at The Standard in London as part of the series Their Stories, which platforms narratives from the LGBTQ community. This means there are some great questions from the audience at the end. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Let's dive in. So I just want to welcome you all today to their stories. Thank you very much for taking some time on your Sunday afternoon to spend time with us. I'm sure some of you may have had a late night last night, maybe. But I really appreciate it. It's lovely to be sharing space with you today. My name's Laurie Belgrave, I'm the founder of The Chateau, and I've been curating these Their Stories talks in The Standard since the summer in 2021. So Their Stories, for anyone who hasn't been before, is a, a queer cultural conversation series. We often have a focus on intergenerational connections here with a knowledge exchange of artists in music, fashion, art, culture. So this is a really, really, really special one today. It's been something I've been working on for a while and it's been kind of like Tetris, trying to make all the dates work amongst like a really, really busy schedule for Lorato and Kirsten. But today they're gonna to be interviewing each other, which is a really interesting different format that we're trying out. And so I'm gonna give a little bit of a, a bio uh, for each of them just at the start so that everyone's got that base level of understanding of where we're coming from, and then they're gonna kick off with the chat. So if you'll allow me briefly. Lakuti was born in Soweto, South Africa, and found herself in London between 1997 and 2012, before settling in Berlin and taking up her residency at the legendary Panorama Bar. Alongside being one of the most fundamental voices in house music, working on and off the dance floor to push the genre's boundaries, both musically and politically, she is an experienced music curator, label owner, and promoter, starting the Sud Electronic label and later Azuri Recordings. Across much of her work, she seeks to create space for black artists within electronic music. And Tamasumo. Tamasumo started DJing at Drama Bar in Kreuzberg, Berlin in 1993. She very quickly became a mainstay of the Berlin electronic music scene, focusing on New York style house at a time when techno was dominating much of the bars and clubs. Since 2001, Tamasumo played regularly at Osgut, Berghain's predecessor club, which eventually led to a residency at the new Panorama Bar in Berghain. 
where she developed a varied style between house, disco, techno, a smidgen of Detroit electro and pop. Since 2008, she's been releasing her own records, remixes, and curating compilations, and continues to develop her DJing style to incorporate house, techno, jazz, disco, broken beat, soul funk, and Afrobeat. Lakuti and Tamasuma are married and partners in both life and music, DJing back-to-back -back in clubs across the globe. They exist at a really interesting intersection of the LGBTQ plus community and the electronic music scene. And that's really a key reason why I was so, so excited to have them here with us at their stories today. I sent Lorato a cold DM on Instagram and really wanting to make this event happen. And it's due to her warmth and openness that she has agreed to come here today with Kirsten to, to share space with us. So I really, really just want to say I appreciate that so much. And I think uh, all that's left to do is to hand over to Tamasumo and Lakuti. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be relaxed, hopefully, and easygoing. And uh, so, I guess we start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? And was it a musical background? I mean, I, I grew up in the Bavarian countryside and really country countryside, small village. Um, musically, there was not really much that was on the table. Um, we didn't have amazing record stores there where I come from. My family, well, they listened to different stuff, but there was nobody really so nerdy. I think it was just me that then always at that time said, when, when there was hit parade or what, whatever, um, I sat in front of the radio and was recording, but you still just got kind of the mainstream stuff. Um, yeah, and how was the upbringing? Um, I think as a child it was cute to grow up in the village because you didn't have so much boundaries. You were allowed to play in the streets um, because there were hardly any cars driving and things like that. But um, latest, when I got 10, 11, 12, I felt a little bit bored and wa was looking forward um, yeah, to be able to maybe go to the next city. How was it with you? Uh, Laurie explained, I grew up in Soweto. Uh, there's a lot of music around me. My mom was a huge music fan. She collected records, put them in a suitcase uh, above the, what you might call it, closet. And my grandfather used to be at, uh, a bass player and she had many friends uh, that were playing jazz. So yeah, I had that influence, soul and funk and jazz in my families. And uh, even though growing up, I wanted to listen to the top 40, I was usually fighting with them to listen to what I wanted to hear. Yeah, it was a great upbringing. So how, how did you get into electronic music then? We had a really great club scene in the 90s in South Africa, really fantastic scene. I remember the first ever rave party. It was organized by a sound system actually from uh, Nottingham. Grace Sands, uh, some of you know Grace. It was some of their mates that organized it. And this was totally revolutionary. Before then, there was hardly anything even close to kind of raving in South Africa. And after this party, it kind of, the gates were opened. And this was around 1990. And there was all these crazy parties popping up everywhere in different kind of crazy buildings. 
I actually got the bug. I got into it. But prior to that, we used to have a lot of great kind of music programming from the U.S., also Canada. What was it? There was a program from Canada that showed kind of very late at night music videos and stuff like that. And I remember seeing uh, Daryl Pandy on television and thinking, wow, this larger-than-life character. At the time, I didn't know that they were queer, but there was something different about them, and I was really drawn to them. And even prior to Daryl Pandy, I think seeing Sylvester in the 70s on television for the first time had a great impact on me. Here was this person who was just so completely different. And at the time, I didn't have the language to even describe what was going on there. And I remember negative comments around me about this character, but I was so drawn to them and I was so curious about this character. And so I guess those two things really impacted me in such a way that I wanted to explore more. Did you start DJing already when, when you lived in South Africa? Oh, but when I was 19, I was at university at the time, studying to become a lawyer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there was a coffee shop that I used to work at, and they had a small theater upstairs. They used to do uh, theater programming there, but they stopped, and I managed to convince my boss at the time to let me do a club there. So 19, completely clueless, my friends and I started doing this club called Planet Hendon. Well, we didn't make him any money because we couldn't manage the bar. The first night, he should have known that we were really the wrong ones because uh, halfway through the night, we let our friends take over the bar because we couldn't be bothered. They still let you get on with the party? Yeah, for two years, he let this <laughs> thing go on until we realized that this is a bad investment. It's not going to work. But maybe they still saw potential. I mean, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So but when did you start DJing then? Honestly, I never actually thought of what I was doing as DJing. I just thought of it as somebody collecting records and loved music. And so at Planet Hand, and I'll dabble in it, but it was never truly formalized. And I think I'm still coming to terms with the fact that I'm now considered a DJ, to be quite honest, because it was never planned. It's just something that happened because I like to put on parties. At the start of my party, I'd invite people then have to DJ. So I, it, it all happened organically, and I'm still processing all of it, to be quite honest. Yeah. You, I mean, how did you get into electronic music and subsequently DJing? I mean, electronic music in the 80s, even in, in the small village, I did hear of Deepish Mode and things like that. And then um, I moved to Erlangen to study, and this was close to Nuremberg, and there was a little bit of a scene, so friends and I often went out there, and then we read about the first Acid House party. We were like, oh my God, we have to go there. We, we read so many things about Manchester, and mm -hmm. so we were totally up in arms, and um, yeah, it was something completely new, all of those, I mean, Nowadays, we are used to those sounds, but, but for our ears, it was like, oh my God. And yeah, we went out a lot. Then I moved to Berlin in the 90s, and this was even a completely different um, soundscape in a way, because Berlin was a bit, m not a bit, it was, was more into techno, which 
I think also fitted the, the situation there. You had the wall coming down, you had a hell of a lot of um, empty rooms that people could just take over, put a sound system into a party. And um, yeah, this is this was the time when I got into electronic music, actually. So you moved to Berlin in 1990, 1990 right? 1990, yeah. And it was exciting times. I mean, it was a little bit like anarchy at this moment because it's, it's honestly, you, you had spaces when nobody really knew who they belonged to. And um, you just heard, I mean, we, we were speaking of times where there was no internet or... Um, so you sometimes also just heard, okay, next week there's a party going on in the second backyard on this and this street, and then you were there, that there were hardly any lights, and you felt like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. And then you heard a little bit pumping, and then you went there and opened the door and was like, it was pure excitement. And I think this was something that I found really great at that time, that a lot was spontaneous. I think nowadays cities often do not allow for spontaneity, do you say? So, because, yeah, you, it's not so easy to access rooms, you have to pay a lot of rent, and, and, and at that time you could just, yeah, you had the freedom to experiment a little bit and, and do things, which I found very exciting. You moved to London in... Uh, 1997, March 97. What's the motivated you to come here? I always kind of followed what was going on musically in the UK. And I mean, we had access to the Face magazine in South Africa at the time. So it kind of influenced me a great, great deal. And I wanted to see what was going on for myself. So I saved some money. Plus, I was in a relationship with somebody from the UK. So those two things kind of pushed me to London in 97, yeah. How did London inspire you musically? In every way possible. Honestly, when I moved here, it was kind of like a 10 Christmases all wrapped into one. And at the time, what was special about London is that you had a lot of weekday events, great events. If you wanted to party in London from Monday to Monday, it was possible. I mean, I remember going on a Monday to Bar Ramba, which was such a great venue. I used to go on a Monday to hear Giles Peterson play. And I used to go also on a Thursday for a drum and bass night. And uh, yeah, you had also the old Blue Note. There were so many great music-led events. There were so many great people and plastic people, of course, which played such a huge, huge... Uh, influence on what I do really uh, was also there. At the time it was in Oxford Street before it moved to Shoreditch. So London was really vibey, exciting, and yeah, it was just limitless. And so many cool, as I said, music-focused uh, things were happening. So how did it come or how did you decide to become a part of this amazing, vibrant London nightlife? I had a friend uh, who was making music at the time, and we made music together in South Africa. So we always had that interest to kind of do something together. And when we both moved to London, and yeah, we just kind of started throwing free parties there and there, and decided to start our own label as well with no money. We didn't realize how 
bloody expensive it is to do this. And uh, we actually got money from the Princess Trust to start our label. Prince Charles. Yeah, King Charles, apparently, now, yeah. So, yeah, that's how we started doing things, yeah. So you, you started the label and you did parties. Yeah, um, we did parties and we had friends that were throwing also free parties. So we just got involved in any way possible, playing in each other, other people's living rooms, whatever. Whatever came to be, we just wanted to be a part of it. And I, I mean, even when I moved to the UK, I moved to the UK with 400 pounds. <laughs> Would I do that now? No. But then I did this. And uh, at the time, actually, I was in Newcastle briefly. I mean, obviously, the 400 pounds went very quickly, even, I mean, to records. Can you believe it? I was homeless, but still managed to use that money to buy records. Crazy. Did you DJ then also at your own parties? Yeah. when we, I mean, we did a few things. We used to do a night on a Wednesday, Plastic People, and we used to do a Sunday thing in a place i don't know if it's still going or also in shortage and yeah we would both play alan and i uh, who he records under the name portable yeah how did your djing come to be i mean i know you started djing at cafe drama in berlin that that's correct and what year I, was this 93 it was yeah. 1993 yeah. so i'm i'm 30 this year as <laughs> tamasumo i think i'm i'm from now on only celebrating Celebrating my Tamasumo birthdays. God, Makes so you've younger. been teaching for 30 years. That's amazing. Yeah. I came into it actually via a friend of mine, Holger, who was DJing under the name of Fierce because he was a big DJ Pierre fan. And um, I actually didn't want to do it. I always I had the same situation. I mean, I wasn't homeless, but I had no money. But the little money that I had, I always spent on records. And he was like, come on, you have so much fun with music, you should actually play. And I felt that I'm a more withdrawn person and the perspective of being so out there, I felt quite uncomfortable with it. So I first always refused. Then he started at this queer bar, Cafe Drama, where people usually went before they went out and um, played three Saturdays there. And he was like, come on, it would be much nicer together. I sell you my old record players for cheap, and you can you can start um, yeah mixing, try it out, and then let's do it together. And then he kind of overran me and was like, okay, for this and this week, I talked to the two owners. We're playing there. He made also a date on a radio station beforehand, and I thought I'm going to kill him because I thought I'm not ready. And I Did think you not print out flyers first? Yeah, yeah. they printed flyers, they did everything, so I had no chance to withdraw from this situation. But I'm, I'm really thankful to him. Without Holger, I wouldn't do what I'm doing. And it was also the same situation like what you said. It, I never planned to live from, from DJing, and I think in 93, this was really not kind of a job concept. It was more like, okay, maybe it's fun. I can make a little bit of money that I then can put into music. And then, yeah, from there, it went actually pretty quick because a lot of people that worked in the nightclubs went to drama as a warm-up. And, um, yeah, then then we played regularly at Globus Tresor. Then, um, you held the Plush. residency at Tresor as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, for over 10 years. 
yeah, and we played a lot of, of queer parties also. There was a regular one Saturdays called Plush at Cafe Moscow. Yeah, and then it kind of um, developed in a direction that <laughs> I never would have thought it would. Did you have kind of a, also for me it was Holger, for example, this close friend of mine, did you have kind of a mentor or somebody who got you a little bit uh, into DJing? I mean, as I said, my friend and I moved here together, so we used to kind of do everything together, including starting parties here in London. The party went on for 11 years, which I'm still surprised by, but uh, the suit electronic parties, that's, yeah. So Alan played a really big role in motivating me to kind of get into it, I would say, yeah. So and you do play at Plastic People as well? You yeah, I used to play, We I did a party when Plastic moved to Shoreditch with Alan, as I said, on a Wednesday. Then we used my friend and I, Earl Gateshead, who is really a big mentor for me, and he's still DJing, I think, and he's in his late 60s, amazing guy. And he, yeah, he, we met and he kind of took me under his wing and we used to do a monthly together at Plastic People on a Friday. Wow. About the label, you started Suit Electronic, when was it, two... 2002? Yep. And then five years later, you started another label, Usuri Recordings. Yeah. I mean, Sud was started really as an outlet for my friend who was producing at the time Portable, uh, the island that I keep on mentioning. And uh, yeah, we both, I mean, he was frustrated. He was sending music out. Nobody uh, cared to sign the music. So we were like, we're gonna try and do our own label. And we managed without having money, thanks to this princess, uh, Prince Charles fund or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, we started off really mainly focused on his uh, productions and it quickly expanded. And Uzuri came because I also wanted to, do my, to have my own outlet. You know, because uh, for a while, yeah, we were, there was a synergy between us, but there was also differences. So Uzuri really was my pet project, and I wanted to do that, and yeah. You experienced the London scene a lot, um, and now, I mean, you don't live here anymore, but you still, you play here quite often. Could you describe how the, the scene in London changed? There's a lot going on in London. I guess now there's so many festivals, things seem to be more festival-orientated rather than club-focused. And I would say that's one of the big, big differences. And uh, as I said, I mean, the way, for me, venues like Plastic People were really so crucial. And I think the influence of Plastic People is still resonating in London right now. I think really there wouldn't be an NTS without Plastic People because people like Femi, we call the second generation of Plastic People kids. Yeah, what I loved about London back then was just these special, really music-driven venues. It was really people that were so passionate about music. 
like added to what's the owner of Plastic People. Now, I, I'm not really sure what's going on. As I don't really live here, but what I see and what I experience is that there's a lot more bigger things again in London. I think we're back in the super club era again. And uh, again, also more festivals. And I, whilst I enjoy those things as well, I, I miss this kind of a music focus, smaller venue experience that was so special in this city. And how did you come about to DJ at uh, Panorama Bar? You started off at the old Oscar, right? Can you tell us more about the old Oscar and how you started playing there? I mean, starting to play there, how it came is actually quite funny because I always yeah, we, we heard there's this new club, Osgood, and um, it sounded quite interesting. I think they also needed some time because at the beginning there were not too many people, so it, it needed... Yeah, and at one point, I once went there as a guest and found it great because it was the first time that I felt like, oh, wow, there's not only 20-somethings that go out, but there were also people over 40 or over 50 that you saw, which I found a quite new thing compared to the times before. And one day I was at work at the time, the phone rang and, and it was Michael from Osgood and was like, yeah, I was wondering um, for, for CSD, which is the Berlin's um, Gay Pride, we doing a party and they asked me to play an 80s set. So I was up in arms to have yeah a request from Osgood. And it went obviously well, it was fun. And then, yeah, from that time on, they asked me more often to play, especially at the queer night. They had Fridays, Dance with the Alien. And they also, at this time, Osgood closed Sunday afternoon. So it was not those crazy long nights that we have nowadays. And then Sunday night, um, Michael decided to make kind of a disco night to remember also the, the roots where house music is coming from. And he was like, he wanted everyone of us that are booked there to play our version and our vision of disco music, which I think was a great idea because it forced you also to think a little bit further outside the house and techno box. Yeah, and then Osgood Clough. For two years, you had rumors if they opened a new club, but both of them were saying, like, no, we're going back to our old jobs, that's it. <laughs> and then you heard around 2004, there were more rumors of, yeah, we heard there's something, a new Osgood is opening, <laughs> and everybody was excited and also curious about who will play there. And then they opened, and I think two or three weeks, they opened Panorama Bar first, Berkheim was a few weeks later. Then I got a phone call if I want to play, and I was going crazy, of course. Since then, I'm I'm playing there. This was 2004 when they opened, and so I'm part of the old furniture, kind of. Maybe we should talk a little bit about the Your Love Night, like how people maybe want to know how we started. Basically, your love started at Dance Tunnel, which is now unfortunately closed. Then we approached by Dan Bimont, who was the owner, about doing something there. So we came up with your love. And the name came about from Frank Knuckles and Jamie Principles. Uh, so we did that for two years at Dance Tunnel before it shut down. And Matt, at the time, was uh, programming Dance Tunnel. So 
he wanted to carry on with your love with that. So we moved the party around for a while until we settled at Corsica Studios. We really just wanted to start a party that was really simple and about love because that's what we do this for i guess and also about really just focusing on good music and importantly supporting djs that we really love and appreciate and i mean we've booked people from sada baha to marcellus pitman uh, to now recently errol and uh, alex rita from uh, touching base great great crew yeah, we put quite a lot of people that we passionately love in terms of what they do. Then we were approached by Panorama Bar to maybe take the concept to Berlin. And prior to that, we were already programming or at least given the opportunity to program three or four nights a year. So it kind of makes sense to continue that way and continue it under our own kind of name and brand. Yeah, Berlin actually started even a little bit before Dance Tunnel, but just not under under your love. And yeah, I think what, what is important for us also is the thought of a community. I don't know, we both come from a time where nightlife was community-centered also, which probably now in the last few years you have more and more festivals and big festivals that sometimes the, the thought of a community maybe is a little bit of an afterthought. And I don't know, I think for both of us, this is important to have something where you feel home and good and um, where there's a, a certain connection between people. Yeah, I mean, pretty much my first experiences with going out to raves kind of still dictate to me how I continue because up until then, as a queer black woman growing up in the townships, I felt really alienated. Once I've discovered raving and clubbing, it kind of opened such a new door. And my life really, I'm not kidding, changed in such a profound way because I found people that were similar to me and I didn't feel judged in any way and I didn't have to conform to what an idea of a real woman is. This is what clubbing brought to my life back then. And I still live by that ethos that it's so important to have these spaces that allow for people to exist without judgment and allow for people to have the kind of freedom you don't often have in day-to-day -day life, you know? And this is why I will fight to really preserve clubs. Not, I'm not talking about festivals here. I really think that it will be such a shame if we don't realize how important these spaces can be and how we should really fight to preserve them and how we should also really promote and encourage independence. Yeah, I can just um, completely agree. I don't know I, if, if we would lose the clubs, this would be um, super sad. But as I also said, I have a feeling that there's more and more people craving also for a community again. If we play community-based parties, there's really, there is some warmth. It's just priceless. As, as people, we all are inspired by others. So. Could you name a few people who inspire you as a DJ? Oh, there's so many. As I mentioned, Adi at Plastic People was really a huge, huge inspiration for me. And people like Ron Trent, Joe Tlossel, 
that kind of caliber of artist really, really inspires me. And also there's a lot of newer artists that I think are great and inspiring, like Shaiwan, Elso Errol from uh, Touching Bass, uh, Muscle Cars in New York City. So many young people doing great things. I mean, I honestly have to say, because there is a lot of moaning about new DJs, like mm, that it's so much fake and la-di-da. I feel like, yeah, but there's also really jeweled muscle cars or, or Errol and Alex Rita. They blew my mind. I was like, wow, I, I wish I would have been there at their age. This is just amazing what they do. And they are brave and bringing something to the table where I felt like, Wow, it's I'm I'm speechless. It's beautiful. They're taking risks. They play with the crowd. They read a crowd. It's it's really I I have goosebumps. And maybe with some words about back to back. Honestly, this whole back to back thing, I was so opposed to it because it felt so gimmicky. Because I was getting requests from random people asking me to back to back with people I've never met in my life, and I'm like, what is happening here? So. We really didn't intend to do it. And I remember when the requests came first for us to do it, we were both like, no, because it's something that happens spontaneously when the feeling and the vibe is correct. And somehow we ended up doing it. And I can't tell you when was the first time we did it, but it just ended up being that way. And it kind of makes sense. We live together. We really love the same music. So it's funny how I pick up a record that I haven't heard for ages. Then you mention it. So there's a telepathy thing going on there as well. We didn't plan it. It just happened that way. Yeah, actually, at the beginning, we always were opposed to it. Like, no, it's such a hype. And, and, and it's also, I think, a very emotional thing. So it can, it can also go completely wrong if the one is more in a, I don't know, soulful mood. The it, other one is it more It did in actually the... go wrong. I will never forget one sort of <laughs> electronic party where we spontaneously decided to back-to-back, -back, I think, with Levon Vincent as well. Yeah. I was furious. Because we were not ending up at the same... It felt like a war, almost. <laughs> we were not going to the same place. We didn't land at the same place, yeah. How is it being on, on this intersection between the the electronic, electronic music scene and the LGBTIQ community? How does it feel DJing there? Or Honestly, I love to play all kinds of parties. Also, I think as a queer black woman, it's kind of fierce going to a completely different country and DJing to a whole group of straight guys that are shocked that you can actually do the job. I don't know. For me, it's super important that it's queer, queer visibility, not just kind of uh, in a bubble. We need to be visible in all spheres of life. Yes, there's an issue of safety as well, and I recognize that but for me it's really important that as queer people we are recognized for our excellence not only within the queer bubble because let's face it queer people played a pivotal role in how this music came to be we should be claiming every space possible so i really like to play different parties my ideal situation is to play a mixed party. 
because uh, I think in 2023, this should be a given. And it's kind of sad that we still are not intermingling uh, in that way in these spaces. It should be happening by now because if we cannot party together, how can we change the world? I don't know. I just think for me, as a party promoter, I'm focused on making sure that people from different walks of life have access to the party. And I think this is really important. Whether you're straight or queer, this should matter. I would actually see it the same way. As much as I think it's important that we have queer spaces, as we are sadly also in society probably not there yet, that we can just be us and feel free and safe everywhere. I also feel like it's the most amazing thing if we all can party together and if all communities feel at home and as safe as possible and as respected as possible in a space. So, yeah, if, if this is possible, if you can lay the foundation also as promoters um, to not only promote diversity, but to really work for Party, it because yeah. I, I think it's not enough to just want different communities there and I'm not speaking about LGBTIQ plus only but also if you want to have a diverse crowd and also a diverse lineup I think you have to do a lot of work to see different perspectives yeah I mean something like Annie Gijon winning for example a Grammy this is a huge thing it's just so sad that it's only taken up to now that a trans woman gets the recognition they deserve on a larger scale. And what I mean is also small things. I don't know. I mean, sadly, we are still at a point where probably for a trans person, it's not so safe to take a cab from the venue to the hotel. Maybe organize a driver, see that, that things are really safe and good for everyone involved. It takes work to change things, you know, they don't happen organically. This is why I was saying as a promoter, it should be important for you to make sure that your party is open and taking the steps. Because we talk a lot about diversity these days, but that diversity doesn't come because we talk about it on social media. It takes a lot of work to make those things work. And everything we do is in progress. The work doesn't stop. So if you want change, you constantly have to work on change. And read and also maybe ask people because very simple. I mean, I'm a white person, you're a black person. I learned a hell of a lot in the last 10 years that when I was in my white bubble, I maybe didn't know. And I think, yeah, if, if you're a promoter, maybe also the people that you invite, ask them. Ask them also for special needs or requirements that go beyond music, for example. You have been involved in nightlife for quite a few days, so what still keeps you excited? And um... For me, it's the music. I, I really love music. I engage with music every single day, you know, and it's not something that I'm like, oh, now I've got to engage with music. It just happens. I'm listening to so much music. And, yeah, and again, it's also the people around nightlife you know it's a different kinds of people that i've met through nightlife that keep on exciting me and could be a party with just a hundred people and it would be so inspiring to me and your good self there <laughs> 
actually the same. I mean, I'm still excited about music. If you find something new, it doesn't have to be newly produced. It's, it's just if you discover something and then it's like, oh my God, I mean, we do it a lot. Like, you have to listen to that. Look what I found. Da, da, da. It's so, I, I still can be like the little child with that. It's priceless to see people smile on the dance floor, to have a great vibe. It's beautiful and it still keeps me running. What do you feel are the challenges we are facing with the nightlife uh, currently? Is, is there a change before and after COVID? I mean, yeah. I mean, things with all the inflation, the wars and craziness happening in the world. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, people's bills have gone up by a huge amount. So I guess nightlife is no longer a priority for most people simply because they have to eat and pay rent and uh, so that's a big challenge because also post-covid everything from renting equipment became that much more expensive and sadly it just means that it's even more difficult for independent promoters to survive in this current climate you know and the changes i saw after covid Honestly, not as much as I wanted to see. <laughs> I have to be honest because over lockdown, it felt like finally something major was going to shift in nightlife. People felt like people were reflecting. And yes, there are some changes. This, you know, clubs are much more conscious of booking black folk, for example. We see that a lot even in our Berghain, that there is a huge focus on making sure that there isn't a night where there are no black folk playing. But I still think we are a long, long way from really making nightlife accessible to everybody. I mean, I actually have not really something to add. I think you summed it up very well. I also feel like it's great that those changes were happening, that there's at least some consciousness about um, what maybe went wrong with programming beforehand. But I think that's just the beginning. It, it shouldn't end where we are now. Yeah, but I it mean, should barely definitely has to develop further. Yeah. We barely scratch the surface because also within the talk of diversity, yeah, you can book as many black people as you want, but the actual, a lot more needs to change and be sort of like programming. I mean, are you creating the right circumstances for black people to thrive within you making space for them? You know, and this is not easy. And I think a lot of venues have not really thought deeply into this situation. They just think, okay, let's just book people and yeah, appearances. It looks good, but it takes a lot more. People that care, we need to keep clubs in focus. We can't keep quiet and we need to hold everybody accountable at this point because it shouldn't be that in this done age, you know, we're still facing the same struggles, you know. Thank you so much, Lakuti. Thank you, Tamasumo. So we do have a little bit of time for questions. I was going to ask, um, what are your thoughts about the music scene in South Africa? Like you were saying how you've traveled around a lot. Are you still connected to like the South African community? Like I know like Bay Electronica and like the other radio and all these other communities that are queer that are still doing that. 
I'm just curious about your thoughts about the scene in South Africa. I mean, I am very much still connected to South Africa. In fact, every year we go and play there and I spend some time back home. There's a lot of great things happening and so much talent. And this is another thing on issues of diversity, which I, it's, it's something that we should really think about and try to change. The continent as a whole has so much talent, but this diversity and openness in Europe has not been open to African artists. And it costs the same amount, even less, to fly an artist from America and, and South Africa. And I don't understand why diversity means only Western countries. This has been something that has been bugging me for the longest of time, and I'm making it a mission to put this subject on the table because it shouldn't be that African artists are sidestepped. My question is about whether either of you find consider yourself spiritual people, and if so, do you find any spirituality through your practice of DJing and interaction with the dance floor? Most definitely. And the funny thing is, if you mention this, I remember having a lot of talks with Ron Trent about this. There is something really spiritual for me personally because it's about connecting with people on a deeper kind of realm, you know, and it's, it's about people. It's not spiritual in the religious way, you know. It's just an energy, synergy thing, you know, where you feel transformative in that way, where you feel that you're connected, same emotions and tears now and again, <laughs> yeah. I, I think so too. I mean, it has a lot to do with energy. And, and yeah, when people sometimes ask, like, um, what was your most amazing party? I couldn't even say or, or come with some anecdotal thing. It, it's more like if the energy is right, then, and, and if the vibe was great, then it's, that's perfect. But you cannot really put another name on it. It always sounds so esoteric in a way, but yeah, some feeling. Thank you so much. Yeah, there's something that you are speaking about, and I guess it's on this point, because then I wasn't going to say anything. But I'm from Jamaica, and <laughs> we don't have any clubs, period. I'm also trans, queer, all the rest of it. And I think the first time I found myself in a queer space was in someone's living room, <laughs> in what was a party. But I'm also a movement practitioner, and when I say practitioner, it's just like doing movement. And I think I kept linking ritual to partying so much so that for me, I'm like, it's black and it's queer. Like there's nothing about putting music on in any space and then putting bodies in that space and it not becoming something transformative happening. And that's what I guess always happens in Jamaica. And I think the thing about the diversity and the inclusivity and the, all of this stuff, I think it's so linked to the healing of black and queer bodies. It's so important. And I think once, I guess, blackness enters those spaces, I'm just like, the music already for me is black. <laughs> like It enters from that place of the drums and of ritual. And like there isn't space or room to even recognizing that or respecting that or holding space for us to enter those spaces. And I think there's something for me that is so linked to capitalism and the lack of the healing for queer and black bodies that I think the erasure of not allowing us in those spaces is such a huge mission. And I think for someone like me, it's just like, I've never been to a club before traveling to the West, never. 
And um, the idea of that for me is just like, then what now do we do when ritual is something that is in our bloodline and then it's erased with westernization and then removed by club spaces or spaces that are labeled as clubs and then we're excluded from practicing. And it's just like the idea of our bodies not being able to practice some kind of ritual that includes sweating and hearing drum patterns. It's just like there's a door that's closed. And I think I would really like, obviously, you know, we're all people and we're here figuring it out together. And that's what this space feels like for me, like a very transformational space. But now I'm just like, what next do we do in the face of that in terms of capitalism and taking over spaces? Because I'm just like, I started an event in Jamaica that it it died because of this same Western concept of you can't afford to get in the space that is now the space allowed for that kind of thing. So it's just like, if you could just say, I don't know any thoughts on that. I mean, maybe that wasn't a question, but you know, just yeah. thoughts. Honestly, I often think about this, honestly, because in my ideal world, I'll have a space, but I'm not rich, so I don't have a space. But we should maybe think of different ways of ownership and coming together, forming a mutual kind of society where not one person, but many people bring their resources together. I think it's so necessary. A lot of younger people don't know clubbing in an independent sense because in the last decade or so, there's been so much corporate money coming into clubbing. Uh, but I'm not knocking anybody that wants to make a living in any way. We all need a rent. But I think there's something to be said for independence. And I will always encourage independence because it's not easy, honestly. But for me, it was so important as a black person knowing how difficult it is for us to be able to occupy space, to be heard. And I don't know, as I said, coming here with no money, I still persevered because it was so important to me to express in the way that was unfiltered and that was beneficial to my community. So I think we need to think of ways of actually coming together to form alternatives to the corporate-led and corporate-run spaces. You know, it shouldn't be that it's just one person that needs to figure it out financially. We need to find ways of investing in one another. Fab. That's a really beautiful way to close the conversation. Thank you. I just want to thank you so much for taking time in your schedules, sharing your stories. Lakuti, thank you, Tamasumo. Thank Thank you for listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. You can browse our full archive of episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you love this show, leave us a review and a rating as it helps get our stories to more ears and subscribe to our channel to keep up to date on everything we have coming out. If you have ideas for someone you'd like to hear on the RA Exchange or documentary or series ideas you'd like for us to explore, feel free to reach us over email at exchange at ra.co. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time. Take care.